All right, well, good morning. So we're going to be in Psalm 139 today. Psalm 139. 139. Reverend Boyce uh, has a commentary who gave a very nice introduction to this psalm, which I'm going to take the liberty to quote. He says, speaking of doing theology today, we often talk about the conflict between the head and the heart, saying that either one alone is inadequate. A theology that is all of the head is cold, dry, barren, and of little practical value. A theology that is all heart may be warm, comforting, and practical, but it will lack substance. Because it does, it will be subject to every theological fad that comes along and will not hold up in hard times. Psalm 139 has both head and heart. It is strongly theological, dealing with such important doctrines as God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. But it's also wonderfully personal because it speaks of these attributes of God in ways that impact the psalmist and ourselves. Uh, I certainly could not think or write a better introduction, and I read a number of other commentaries, uh, efforts had taken a swing at that, but I certainly landed on this one. In order, we're going to look at the omniscient God, the omnipresent God, the omnipotent God, that is the creator God, and the personal God, and then finally, the God in whom I trust. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This passage clearly talks about the omniscient God, the God that has, as it says in verse one, searched us and known us. Many people have said that Mankind's deepest need is um, to be known, to feel fully known and uh, understood, and we might even add uh, uh, embraced and, and loved. And it says in that first verse, you have searched me and known me. Um, as I looked uh, at this psalm, uh, I learned a new word, as several commentators pointed out, that Psalm 139 is full of merisms. Merisms. This is M E R I S M. Uh, can anyone give me an example of a merism? Now, as I was talking about this this morning on the way to church, my lovely wife said, I do merisms all day. <laughs> and uh, I, um, uh, she is known around our house as Mama Mare. And uh, so she does uh, espouse merisms all day. But a merism is where you talk about the extremes of something, and what you're trying to get across is that you mean everything in between. A classic one would be when you say, 
I searched high and low. That means you searched everywhere. So as we, let's look at some of the merisms. There are three in our first passage, one through six, and then there are three in our second stanza, seven through 12. It says in verse two, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. That means you know me all day long. When I sit down and when I rise up. It says in verse three, you search out my path, that is my walking as I go through the course of my day, and you also know my lying down. So you know what's going on when I'm up and when I'm active. You know what's going on when I'm uh, lying down and, and quiet. And it goes on, you're acquainted with all my ways. Verse five, it says, you hem me in behind and before. In other words, you uh, surround me. Now, as you look in these uh, passages, uh, you may get a little bit of a feel that uh, this is the essence, kind of there's a subtext here of what it really means to fear the Lord. Because as the psalmist is talking about these wonderful attributes of God, you get the idea that he's started to apply the point that some of these attributes might be a little scary. And it is uh, somewhat of a vulnerable situation when you realize that you are fully known and understood. So it says, verse five, you hem me in behind and before and, and lay your hand upon me. There's a bit of um, restriction there, perhaps a little bit of the constraining power of God. Uh, when it says uh, your hand is upon me, that could be, well, just think of a parent all the different ways that as a parent, you lay hands on your child. There are times you're wiping noses. There are times you're getting dressed. There are times you're comforting. There are times you are correcting. There are times you are leading. There are times you're dragging them out of harm's way. There are a lot of different ways that as a parent, we lay hands on our children and perhaps our grandchildren and the same thing here. So it's, uh, it's not all nice and cuddly. It's, uh, the full power of God as applied to us. But in spite of that, he says in verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verse seven. Here we're getting into the point of the omnipresent God, the fact that God is everywhere. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Again, picking up this kind of you know, even if I wanted to get away from you, God, I really couldn't, sort of a, an idea. Verse eight, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So whether in heaven or in the place of the dead, you are there. And you might think, well, what's God doing in the place of the dead? Well, don't administer, don't forget, and I thought this was an excellent point one commentator made. You know, we get the idea that the devil is in charge of hell. The devil is not in charge of hell. God is in charge of hell. And through his administrative position as lead justice, uh, he will be there uh, administering hell. So whether in heaven or in hell, God is there. Verse nine, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, so whether I'm in the sky or the sea, verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And again, this reference to God's, uh, you know, interaction with us, you might say. And I'll 
mention more of that in a moment. Verse 11 says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me to be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So our merisms, we've seen heaven and hell. We've seen sky and sea. And here we have darkness and light. Uh, there is, there's nothing hidden from God. One of the attributes of God, if you think about it this way, uh, you know, the old kind of uh, little joke, you know, uh, can God do everything? And, of course, there's some things that God can't do, such as he can't learn anything. Think about that. He already knows it. There's nothing that he doesn't already know. He can't learn anything. You just have to have your mind blown a little bit sometimes when you think about it. Here in verse 12, we get a little bit of a lead in to our third attribute, which is the omnipotence of God. Because he says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The darkness is as light as a day. In other words, you can see through the darkness. You can look in places that we can't. So look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Here we have the omnipotence of God to create us and to see into what until the 1950s was unseeable. Ultrasound brought about our ability to look inside the womb and see what all was going on there. Uh, It was a mystery there that for millennia uh, was unknown. It was certainly hidden behind the veil but here we have that that was no uh, barricade to God knowing on knowing what was going on there not just knowing about it but being actively uh, engaged in it so the omnipotence of God just as verse 12 led us into verse 13 look at verse 16 which leads us into verses 17 and 18 where we are reminded again how personal God is. Verse 16 says, You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. As he considers all of the things of God and the thoughts of God and the attributes of God, it's like a dream that is too good to be true. And when he wakes up from it, it's even better than the dream. It's, I'm awake and I'm still with you. You know, how precious to me are your thoughts. And this, this idea that um, in God's foreknowledge, he can see 
uh, our life story um, before it even starts. Uh, just amazing. Verses 19 through 24, as I bring them together under the category, the God in whom I trust. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Uh, Here is a a passage that, as we've talked about some of the psalms being lament psalms, where uh, the psalmist is uh, either uh, complaining or worried or feeling uh, oppressed uh, or stressed. Uh, We get a little bit of that, that there might be uh, some local stress as, and if you think about it, This may, and some commentators argue, this is the crux of the psalm, that he's worried and that he is wanting to align himself with God, to look to God as as being his rescue. And as he's considered this, he's realized just how appropriate and how qualified God is to be his rescue because he has all of these attributes that he's just talked about. Because God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, then who else would you want to put your trust in but God who has all those uh, attributes? Uh, also in verses 19 through 22, you get the idea that uh, part of his reason that he feels okay to appeal to God for this protection is that he has aligned himself <coughs> to what he feels is on God's side of things. And for that reason, it feels that he is okay to ask. And then finally, in this, these verses of submission to say, um, as it does in verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a very humble, very open prayer that I think would be appropriate for every Christian their whole life to pray because all of our life is about having God search us and know us and test our thoughts, try our thoughts. Um, And so this is certainly a a humble place that the psalmist is uh, coming to. Now, I think I would make the argument that Psalm 139 meets all the qualification that Pastor Boyce said, that this is full of head items and full of heart items because we see the personal nature of all these amazing attributes of God. Uh, I'm going to go back and touch on a little bit of what is one of the most gut-wrenching head and heart issues of the day uh, as verses 13 through verses 16 are often used um, in the topic of uh, what do we think about abortion. These are commonly used to support a stance against abortion, and there are several ways that 
these verses might be used to support that stand, and I'm, stance, and I'm going to highlight two of them. One is that the unborn have value because God is our creator. This brings to bear the notion that we have value because when God creates us, he creates us in his image. So we saw in verse 13 that um, God was not only there when we were uh, first uh, conceived, but that he was uh, there when we were intricately woven and uh, was a participant in that. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 describes it when it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Skipping to verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. By the way, this is the only way to ground not just the rights of the unborn, but all human rights. Secularists do backflips to try to come up with a reason why we should value human rights without using the image of God, without stealing Christian concepts. And what they usually wind up doing is saying we should value human life because uh, humans have the capacity to reason and to make decisions and to have self-awareness and a lot of these sorts of attributes. But almost any of you could see the flaws with that argument if you ground human rights on the basis of capacity. Because newborns don't have any of those capacities, nor do people who are born with uh, certain mental handicaps, nor do people who are in the latter stages of dementia or other types of brain damage. All of those have problems with capacity, but yet we would still say that they have value because they're in God's image. God's image does not, uh, it doesn't matter what your capacity is. And... I would encourage you to do some reading about this and uh, some of the things I've heard and read um, try to do a very fair job at presenting the efforts of the secular world to try to get to a place where we all treat each other civilly, but they have a really hard time doing it because ultimately they realize that uh, if you're going to hold an evolutionary point of view of how we got here, uh, where survival of the fittest, and you don't have a really strong leg to stand on on why you say this person ought to be valued more than someone else. The second reason that this passage is sometimes used to uh, argue uh, against abortion is that uh, not only are we created in the image of God, but we have value because, as it says in this passage, we are already persons with a story. And the concept of personhood is extremely valuable and extremely powerful. Uh, there are other passages that support the notion that the unborn have a connection with God. These are familiar. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, we saw when we studied Jeremiah, uh, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then, of course, an even more familiar passage as we uh, remember the early days of Mary and Elizabeth. Luke 1 says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, 
the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Uh, You might say, well, could that have just been coincidence? I guess you could argue that, but here we have where scripture is telling us about a woman who is supernaturally filled with the Holy Spirit and then makes that pronouncement that the reason that the baby left for joy was because of the presence of the yet unborn Messiah. So the unborn value have value. I'm sorry, the unborn have value because they already have a story. They're already persons. Now, I want to make some comments beyond this. Uh, I'm going to make some comments about uh, pro-choice Christians. I want to make some comments about Southern Baptists. And I want to make um, some comments about um, kind of how we ought to act. I looked for what are the potentially good arguments for abortion. And I came across uh, uh, an autobiography of someone who wrote a book specifically saying um, they wanted to give a moral argument for abortion. And it's an interesting book. If you're interested in the topic, if you're interested in fairness about the topic, you should read it. Um, This is a book called Life's Work, From the Trenches, A Moral Argument for Choice. It was written by Dr. Willie Parker. Dr. Parker was born uh, as a black man to a single mom. And I mention his race only because he mentions it strongly in his book and uses that as a basis of some of his arguments. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter. This black man born to a single mom. He never knew who his dad was. Uh, he was born in poverty in Birmingham, Alabama, which we know was just a horrible place in terms of civil rights generally. At the age of 15, he became a Christian. I read his testimony, and I have no doubt that Dr. Parker is a Christian. He is two weeks older than me. Uh, over the course of his career, he eventually uh, married and currently lives in Charlotte. He travels uh, to underserved clinics in Mississippi, in Alabama, and in Georgia uh, providing abortions, and by his estimate, he has performed well over 10,000 abortions. For many years, up until very recently, actually, he was the public face of many abortion groups. Um, he was happy to be an advocate, and he, they were happy to have him as an advocate um, because it looks very good to have a Christian who is in favor of abortion. There are several problems, though, as plague many people who are Christians who have weak theology. He says that a child is only imbued with value when the parents say the child has value. I'm quoting. I regard the meeting of sperm and egg as a biological event, 
no less miraculous, but morally and qualitatively different from a living, breathing human life who is imbued with sacredness only when the mother or the parents deem it so. I don't think scripture ever supports a concept that you only get to value someone when you want to. I I just don't think that's biblically um, good theology. Secondly, he argues against personhood. He doesn't want you to think of the unborn child in the mother's womb as a baby. Obviously, it's easier to think about aborting a fetus than it is killing a baby. Quoting again, that the fetus has human features, fingers, eyelids, toes, ankles, only enhances the illusion that this is already a baby. They're a baby. But to refer to the fetus in utero as a baby is inaccurate. It reflects a hope, not a reality. In reference to a fetus, baby is a cultural term, not a scientific one. Thirdly, he does not want to align his view of God with what Scripture says. We know that the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Now, are there actions of God in the Old Testament that are different than the actions of God in the New Testament? Yes. But if you roll up your sleeves and do the work, you see that it's the same God with the same principles heading in the same direction in the gospel story. Here's his view. He says, quote, The Bible is not stuck in time, but rather a living, breathing, divinely inspired document, and the God I believe in exists within its pages, is big enough, flexible enough, and loving enough to accommodate a very different perspective. And then a few pages later, he talks about what he calls his conversion. That is, when he went for many years uh, refusing to do abortions because he said his Christianity had made him think that way. He goes on to say, as circumstances forced me out of my complacency professionally, so did it force me to articulate a new understanding of God, which would prompt, embrace, and support my professional choice. This is the understanding I came to on my own with my books and my tapes and the voice of my loving mentors and personal saints in my head. And I reassert it here in the hope that other Christians and other people of faith might find in my evolution some comfort and perhaps some inspiration to see abortion as part God. Fourthly, and finally, he says we don't become more like God by aligning ourselves with who he is. Rather, we connect with God by being like God in deciding whether to end a pregnancy or not. And I'm going to quote again, again, partially out of fairness and partially to give you the context. And partially because his point from the very first title is to make a moral argument for abortion. He says, if you look at it that way, if you set aside the idea that God is like Siri telling you to go left or to go right, then the whole business is sacred, all of it. A pregnancy that intimates a baby is not more sacred than an abortion. You don't become sacred like Mary just because you conceived, and the termination of a pregnancy is not the resolution of an error. It's merely one of the reproductive outcomes. So is miscarriage. So is surrogacy and in vitro. 
All these are on a continuum and they all hold moral weight. The God part is in your agency. The trust, the divine trust, that is that you have an opportunity to participate in the population of the planet and you have an opportunity not to participate. Is God vested one way or the other in whether you as an individual become pregnant? No. Is a pregnancy sacred because there will be a baby ultimately in a bassinet? Beautiful, maybe the next Obama? No. The process is bigger than you are. The part of you that's like God is the part of you that makes the choice that says, I choose to, or I choose not to. That's what's sacred. That's the part of you that's like God to me. The procedure room and an abortion clinic is as sacred as any other space to me because that's where I am privileged to honor your choice. In this moment where you need something that I am trained to give you, God is meeting both of us where we are. Let me say that I believe you can be a Christian and be pro-choice. But I choose to believe that most pro-choice Christians simply haven't done the hard work to base their position on Scripture. I think that if Christians are truly open to humbly aligning their positions with the Bible, inevitably they will be led on a journey that leads to a more pro-life position. I will submit that Dr. Porker, Dr. Parker's opinion about abortion, which he frames as a supporting moral argument, requires a purposeful shift away from Orthodox Christianity. And if you recall in the quote, he listed a bunch of sources for his conversion, none of which were scripture. Now, truthfully, the Christians should spend their entire life working to bring their opinions in light with scripture. The thing is, we're all working on different things at different times. And many of us will borrow an opinion from culture or from our parents or from consensus or society as a placeholder because it seems right, it seems good to us, and we'll adopt that position at least temporarily until we have time to get to the point or until God gets us to the point where we get our Bibles out and we work through the situation on our own. Uh, I have a lot I have learned about what the Bible says about marriage and adultery and divorce because Mary and I have had a number of couples who have had marriage and divorce and adultery. I've seen good things happen, I've seen bad things happen, but those circumstances forced me to go to the scriptures and work it out because the details is where you start to apply the truths of scripture to your life and you and you you can't do it by proxy you can't do it because it's a good idea you have to do the work so those are some comments about pro-choice christians now let me make some comments about pro-life christians three categories first of all pro-life christians have been horrible southern baptists should be humble and all of us should be holistic in our pro-life position First of all, pro-life Christians or people purporting to be Christians have been horrible. Since the 1970s, there have been 11 murders, 42 bombings, 196 arsons, and 491 assaults against just abortion providers. One of the most famous, a doctor named George Tiller, 
who was shot outside of an abortion clinic, recovered from it, continued to do his work with a, with a bad arm, but was later shot literally between the eyes in his church where he was functioning as an usher. There is no Bible support for that at all. We have to acknowledge that the pro-life movement has been horrible in some instances. Secondly, as Southern Baptists, I think we should be very humble. Norma McCorvey, who was the Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade, uh, was represented by two attorneys, both of whom were Southern Baptists. When Norma McCorvey was looking for a safe place to tell her story, the news agency that she picked was the Baptist Press. We should have humility about the fact that we have not always been where we are now, that we may have had opinions that were adopted by the consensus and by the culture, and we have maybe taken our own sweet time to get to a better position. For example, the 1971 resolution of Southern Baptist at, that, at their national meeting, or I should say perhaps our national meeting, 50 years ago says, whereas Christians in the American society today are faced with difficult decisions about abortion, and whereas some advocate that there should be no abortion legislation, thus making the decision a purely private matter between a woman and her doctor, whereas others advocate no legal abortion or would permit abortion only in the life of the mother is threatened, therefore be it resolved that this conviction, I'm sorry, this convention expresses a belief that society has a responsibility to affirm through the laws of the state a high view of the sanctity of human life, including fetal life, in order to protect those who cannot protect themselves, and be it further resolved, we call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of fetal deformity, ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. This is a pro-abortion statement that probably 80% of the country would agree with from Southern Baptists who had this statement pre-Roe as what they thought was a very reasonable position. So we should be very humble as we consider where others are on their timeline, on their journey as they deal with the scriptures regarding the unborn. Finally, I'll argue that in, additions to, in addition to pro-life Christians being horrible and Southern Baptists needing to be humble, I would say that all of us need to be holistic in our pro-life position. We should care about all of life, the unborn, the victims of violence, the elderly, the poor, the disadvantaged, and we should recognize that the gospel of Jesus has implications. It means that we should never look at someone else's sins any worse than our own. You might say, well, shouldn't she have known better? Shouldn't she have had some self-control? Shouldn't she have thought about the consequences? Ever look at a text while you're driving? Finally, we should never look at any of our sins once they've been covered by the blood of Jesus. 
and we should be fully engaged without any shame whatsoever with anyone who has had an abortion or has paid for an abortion. In a room this size, I guarantee you many families have been touched by abortion in one way or the other. So I'm arguing for a commitment to scripture, but also for some understanding in people who may uh, need some time to grapple with the scriptures to get to where God wants them on their position. Uh, I ran a little long, uh, so I'm going to close. And if there's any leftover comments, you can certainly email them to me. Uh, and Mom will make sure I get Father, we thank you for all of the attributes, the, all the things that are too high for us to even think about. We thank you that uh, you brought us to this point. We pray that you would continue to help us to understand Scripture and to apply it to our lives in the ways that, that you would have it. We thank you for Jesus, through whom we have forgiveness of all of our sins. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everyone.